Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Charles Pryor, and you're listening to New Books in British Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. When we read the Declaration of Independence, what tends to jump off the page are the lofty propositions concerning natural rights. Yet over a third of the brief document is taken up with a set of charges aimed at George III, many of them relating to war, whether the maintenance of standing armies, the lack of civilian control over the military, or the forced quartering of troops who enjoyed judicial immunity. The king, it blared, has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. 244 years on, historians of the revolution are still grappling with a durable foundation myth that is focused on ideas, leaders, and projected through plays and musicals. What that obscures is the sheer violence of the late 1770s, a decade defined by conflict, in a century of more or less constant war. Historians of slavery in indigenous America have been filling in corners of the picture, but we still know less than we should about individuals who found themselves defined as the rebellious subjects of the king and out of his protection. In Occupied America, Donald F. Johnson takes us inside colonial towns occupied by the British. For ordinary people, many of them neutrals, The conflict was intensely local and mundane. It was about day-to-day survival and the negotiation of allegiance within a revolution that was, in reality, a civil war. Don Johnson joins me from outside Fargo, North Dakota. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Great. I love the book. Congratulations. Um, I just want to start off by asking you, why uh, did the British occupy, the, the studies based around six towns, and I'm sure you're going to list them, but why did the British occupy these particular six, and why, why do we focus on these six towns? Uh, so it was a mix of uh, military strategy, uh, serendipity, and uh, politics that uh, caused the British to occupy the six stu- uh, cities that I talk about in the book, which are Boston, uh, New York City, Newport, Rhode Island, uh, Philadelphia, Charleston, South Carolina, and Savannah, Georgia. Uh, Boston what happened to be kind of where the revolution broke out, uh, where the first kind of uh, shots were fired, um, and where there was already uh, a large force of British regulars stationed uh, to quell what had been colonial unrest, and which after April of 1775 turned into a full-blown war. Um, after they were forced to evacuate Boston in March of uh, 1776, um, the British chose when they returned to the to uh, the rebellious colonies um, in August of that year, uh, explicitly chose New York City as their base of operations for uh, quashing the rebellion, and so they invaded. Um, 
Long Island uh, and Manhattan Island uh, seized those uh, spots as a uh, principal kind of deep water harbor, a spot to resupply their troops uh, and to use as kind of a bastion for um, instilling loyalty among the countryside. Uh, and it was similar with uh, Newport, Rhode Island uh, and Philadelphia. Uh, they occupied Newport in December of 1776 uh, in order to secure its deep water harbor, uh, as well as to threaten what they saw as kind of the heart of the rebellion in New England um, and garrison uh, a large force of troops close to Boston. Uh, in Philadelphia, which uh, was garrisoned or was attacked the next year by General William Howe. Uh, the British were intending to kind of break the will of the rebel Congress uh, to seize the capital of the uh, self-declared independent United States uh, and potentially uh, humiliate uh, its government. Um, and so there was kind of a political objective uh, to kind of show the populace that uh, they, uh, the rebels could not win. Um, and then after the French entered the war in uh, mid-1778, uh, the British strategy shifted southwards. Um, and it was decided in Whitehall that uh, the war should shift to the wealthiest colonies, which were Georgia and uh, South Carolina. Uh, and so the British invaded first uh, through Savannah, Georgia. Savannah was the largest port um, in Georgia and a principal kind of trading depot with the West Indies and uh, the rest of the empire. Uh, and then Charleston, South Carolina, was the wealthiest city in the colonies uh, and, um, again, kind of a, was meant to serve as uh, a center for recruiting loyalists and uh, instilling kind of allegiance to the crown among the population of South Carolina and the rest of the, the southern colonies. Uh, so it was a mix kind of of, of military uh, strategy and uh, political calculus that uh, that had them choose these six towns. Uh, it's also not coincidental, I'll just add, uh, that the uh, five of these six were the largest uh, towns in uh, the 13 rebelled colonies. Uh, and Savannah, which is the only one that kind of falls outside that uh, category, uh, was arguably more important than a lot of cities that were larger than it. Uh, for example, Salem, Massachusetts, or Norfolk, Virginia, just because of its location uh, and its um, uh, uh use as a uh, trading port uh, with the British and French and Spanish Caribbean. Um, so again, yeah, a mix of military and political necessity um, mixed in with some serendipity such as in, in Boston. So these, these towns are all essentially, they're kind of like nodes of empire. They're, they're the sites of political and, and legal authority and what have you, but they're also places where people live. Um, so I'm just wondering, uh, you, you, the, the phrase that you use it, uh, is, is called the, the lines within the lines. Uh, so what was life within the lines of occupation like uh, for the people who just happened to live in these places? Well, it was very different from what either side expected. Uh, so in almost all of these cities, kind of with the exception of Boston, which was occupied before and, uh, and during the war, 
Um, each of these cities had experienced kind of a break with the empire in 1775 and 1776. Uh, and so the populations of these cities, as you said, uh, were used to being in kind of these networked connections within the British Empire. Uh, and many of them did not take well when the revolutionaries cut off those connections. Um, many people, especially in New York, in Newport, in Charleston, and Savannah, uh, made their livings uh, through these connections, through mercantile activity with Europe, with the West Indies, uh, with Africa, uh, and even in some cases with Asia. Uh, and a lot of them, when the British retook the cities uh, from uh, the revolutionary armies, uh, believed that the king's peace would would arrive and that they would be able to resume their livelihoods um, and that they would essentially be kind of reconnected to that that kind of British commercial world. Uh, and in some cases they were in some cases, uh, you know, I, uh, one of the, the most striking examples I found was a businessman in Newport, Rhode Island named Stephen Ayrault. Uh, and, uh, his letter book, uh, demonstrates that, you know, two days after the British landed, uh, he was already writing to his contacts in London and in the Midlands of Great Britain, uh, ordering hardware, ordering, uh, textiles, ordering basically whatever he could, uh, to sell in Newport. Um, so there was this expectation that commerce would resume and that there was going to be a lot of opportunity. Um, and there were opportunities for not only kind of merchants like Ayrault and, and like others, but also for uh, folks that had been disenfranchised under the revolutionary regimes. Uh, the British army offered uh, freedom to enslaved people who fled uh, rebel masters uh, and in some cases uh, who fled loyalist masters and offered to serve the British army. Um, in New York City, for example, uh, pretty early on, the commander of the city uh, issues an order that all Negroes that fly from the enemy's country are free. Uh, so any black person entering the city could attain their freedom. Uh, in Charleston, it's a little bit different, and they spend a lot of time kind of ferreting out which uh, enslaved people belonged to those who were loyal to the empire and which belonged to revolutionaries. Um, but in all cities, uh, there is a large kind of free black ex-slave population that benefits tremendously from the opportunities of occupation. Uh, similarly, there's a lot of kind of uh, fluidity in gender roles um, in occupation. Um, there's uh, opportunities for women who uh, would earlier have been uh, uh, more subjugated or uh, subject to their husbands, fathers, male relatives uh, to go out and socialize and uh, achieve an economic and social independence from their families in occupied society. Uh, we see a lot of women getting married to British officers, uh, courting British officers. In New York City, uh, courtships were so common uh, that they were almost kind of, uh, it almost became uh, a satire in uh, a lot of kind of gentlemen's magazines and in a number of publications. Um, the kind of trope of the dashing British officer seducing usually a teenaged kind of uh, middling sort uh, uh, American woman. 
Um, but these, you know, these did create some opportunities for women to uh, uh, get away from abusive husbands or restrictive gender roles. Uh, one of the examples I have in my book is um, a woman who ran a boarding house um, in New York City who actually uh, turned occupation to her advantage, both socially and economically. Uh, she housed prisoners of war from the Continental Army uh, in her uh, inn um, and uh, accepted uh, from them the Continental pay that uh, they had gotten in their um and their service. Uh, and then when she had enough of that, she would um, go outside of the lines into revolutionary New Jersey, uh, sell that continental money, use it to buy uh, food at basically cut rate prices uh, and take that into town um, and sell it back to uh, food merchants inside the occupied town. Um, and her status as a woman, as a civilian, allowed her to do this. Uh, it also allowed her to break free from an abusive marriage uh, that she was in um, and to assert her own economic independence and ultimately to throw her husband out of the house. Uh, so there were a lot of opportunities for um, merchants, for um, free blacks, uh, for ex-slaves, for women. Uh, but there was also a lot of privation. Um, food prices went up sometimes by uh, uh a factor of four uh, in New York City, bread prices skyrocketed um, pretty much as soon as the British Army arrived uh, and stayed high throughout the uh, six-year occupation. Um, in uh, Newport, Rhode Island, which is situated on the southern end of Aquidneck Island uh, in Narragansett Bay, uh, by the end of the first year of the occupation, the British Army had deforested the entire island uh, and was sending ships to uh, collect wood from uh, places as far away as Long Island Sound. And so there was... Uh, at the same time as there was opportunity, commercial opportunity, social opportunity, um, there were also kind of um, a lot of deprivation that came along with housing the British Army. I just want to pick that up then. I mean, a lot of the focus is, is on the violence, the deprivation. So what are, let's talk about some of the struggles uh, that the, the populations uh, of these occupied towns confronted. Yeah. So as I mentioned, there were uh, massive food and fuel shortages uh, that threatened kind of everyone's day-to-day well-being uh, in these towns. Um, one uh, witness in Occupied New York noted that um, wood got so expensive that the poor people began burning fat uh, and burning kind of lesser materials in order to stay warm. Uh, and we do know from climate records that the winter of 1778-79, or sorry, 77-78, uh, was one of the coldest winters um, in the uh, uh, second half of the 18th century. Um, we know that in Newport, Rhode Island, for example, people froze to death uh, because they could not get the fuel that they needed to heat their houses uh, and to um, survive uh, through that winter. Uh, but there were also kind of political and uh, uh, just kind of personal dangers as well. Uh, when the British army entered these towns, they forced residents to sign loyalty oaths. Uh, and those who didn't sign loyalty oaths to the crown were subject to military punishment. Uh, 
uh, and military punishment uh, also in, was imposed for a number of uh, different crimes that would have ordinarily been handled by a civil court. Uh, for example, in Boston, uh, a woman who was found uh, to have slaughtered uh, the wrong cow, basically she, she stole her neighbor's cow and killed it, uh, was sentenced to uh, 50 lashes uh, behind a wagon. Uh, right. And for a civilian, this would have been a, 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 almost a death sentence for someone not used to military punishment. Um, there was also, you know, as uh, armies inhabited these these places, um, they lived alongside and oftentimes in the same buildings and uh, cheek by jowl with the civilian population. Uh, this led to a number of sexual assaults, uh, very few of which uh, were actually pursued and punished. Uh, and the few that were, um, there's kind of an interesting legal uh, uh, fiction uh, by which uh, the men were court-martialed and sentenced to death, but then at the last minute reprieved uh, by their victims who were likely pressured into forgiving them and, and pleading for mercy. Um, so there was the risk of sexual assault um, for ex-slaves. There was the risk of re-enslavement and shipment uh, elsewhere. Uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, British officers, uh, several of them made a good living by uh, kidnapping uh, slaves who had escaped their revolutionary masters in the hope of freedom uh, and selling them to contacts that they had in Jamaica, in Barbados, and other places in the British Caribbean. Um, so there were uh, there was exploitation of the civilian population kind of by the military. Uh, and this, again, this is one of the things that started the kind of breakdown of uh, loyalty between, uh, for the British among urban populations. I mean, I mean uh, if you look at these cities, they were kind of the places where, if anywhere, a counter-revolution was to break out, uh, it would have been there. These were populations that were primed uh, to return to their loyalties to the British Empire. Uh, both before the British army came back and at uh, the beginning of these occupations. Uh, but because of these privations, because of the violence uh, that the British army brought with it, because of some of these abuses, uh, a lot of people started to kind of uh, uh, fracture and waver uh, in their loyalties. Well, let's pick up on that theme of allegiance. I mean, the, the revolution is still sometimes uh, approached in terms of what, what to me are kind of shop-worn categories of patriots and loyalists. Um, how does using occupation as a lens uh, complicate our picture of allegiance in this period? Well, it really demonstrates that uh, the, the terms kind of patriot and loyalists um, lose a lot of their meaning when you look at ordinary people's kind of actual experience. Um, and uh, it's interesting because as much as kind of today we try to classify people as loyalist and patriot, uh, this is exactly what the British army and the revolutionaries were trying to do as well. 
in my research, I encountered tons of uh, kind of British officers racking their brains, trying to figure out who in these cities was loyal and who was a rebel. Uh, and if you look at the papers of revolutionaries, you see the same process going on, this, this kind of making of lists and classifying of people by their activities. Uh, and for most people, the, the answer is somewhere in between. Um, you know, you mentioned in, in your introduction that uh, many people were, were kind of fundamentally neutral. Um, and that's true in, in a sense. But uh, in another sense, they also, you know, were, were both patriot and loyalist at the same time. Right. Uh, a lot of these people, um, you know, would swear loyalty oaths to the crown when, and would, you know, believe those loyalty oaths and, and would fundamentally believe that once the war was over and the British won, that, um, you know, they would be rewarded for their loyalty. Uh, but they nonetheless maintained connections with family members, with friends, with relatives in the revolutionary camp. Um, and they did this, you know, in order to survive. Uh, getting supplies from outside of the lines was essential for many people. Uh, getting familial support, um, getting money. Uh, sometimes moving people from uh, uh, in and out of the lines uh, became uh, a matter of life and death. Uh, and when the British uh, withdrew from certain cities, and uh, for example, when the British withdrew from Newport uh, and Philadelphia in um, 1779, uh, or 1778 for Philadelphia, 1779 for Newport, um, you know, it's really telling that even though the majority of the populations had kind of sworn their loyalty and gone along with the occupation, uh, only a small minority actually followed the army out. Uh, only a small minority actually, you know, would, uh, uh, choose British rule explicitly over kind of being returned to uh, revolutionary rule. Uh, and so it demonstrates that, there was this, this kind of give and take. There were people who were hedging their bets, uh, keeping ties to both sides. Um, and, you know, we, it, it's hard to kind of know where to play, classify these people politically. And, and I think, you know, as in other situations where uh, uh, civil wars occur uh, and where revolutionary struggles occur, I'm thinking of, uh, for example, the English Civil War, uh, the French Revolution, um, you know, and, and going forward, um, there is this, this kind of um, ambiguity, uh, which is um, not helped by the fact that it oftentimes was intentional uh, and a survival strategy on the part of civilians living through these struggles. So the, uh, when the war comes to an end, uh, the, there's the high-level negotiations taking place in Paris that result in, in, in the treaty. Um, but you, you point out that these occupied places became centers of reconciliation. So how, how was the peace established in these urban locales? Well, so after Yorktown, so essentially after uh, October of 1781 uh, and into 1782, when the writing seems to be on the wall um, and peace talks are going on between uh, the new United States and uh, Great Britain in Paris uh, and in London, uh, what you see is a lot of civilians kind of using these British occupied territories. And by this point, uh, it's primarily New York City uh, and Charleston, South Carolina. 
um, and even Charleston is abandoned uh, at the end of 1782. Uh, in order to kind of make their own personal pieces to kind of try to uh, write some of those ambiguities and uh, come down either on one side or the other. Uh, and again, you see a lot of flexibility in, in which side people are, are willing to come down on. Uh, one of the most fascinating figures I found in the research was uh, a man named Henry Addison, uh, who was a clergyman, a, uh, a minister in the Church of England serving a parish in Maryland uh, when the war broke out in 1775. Uh, and in 76, he flees to England, uh, where he lives in uh, a remote village um, about three hours outside of London. Um and by 1781, he wants to return to North America and return to the property that he left in Maryland. Uh, he's decided that he's not a Republican. He still favors the British Empire, uh, but that he can make his peace with living under Republican rule if it means that he can go back to living among his neighbors, to his farm in uh, Maryland, uh, and to his family members. Uh, but how to go about that is really tricky because he can't exactly uh, just write a letter to the governor of Maryland or the, the representatives from Congress from his parish in rural England. Uh, so he travels to New York under the protection of the British Army, uh, obtains permission from the commanding general of British New York to engage in personal negotiations uh, with the revolutionaries. Uh, ends up finding uh, a, a relative of his in the Maryland Revolutionary Legislature uh, who's willing to intercede for him. Uh, but at the same time, he hedges his bets. Like many of these people, he obtains for himself uh, a, a kind of a no-show chaplaincy um, on a British ship of war. This was essentially a sinecure, a, a job uh, that he would not have to show up for, but would give him an excuse to remain in either New York City or Halifax um, as long as the ship that he was technically assigned to was in North America. Uh, and so he's using kind of his connections to the Church of England and to the British, uh, as well as his connections to the revolutionaries to kind of try to settle his, his post-war affairs. And he ends up um, essentially with this arrangement that uh, he himself, as a loyalist who fled, uh, cannot reclaim his property, but his daughter can. Um, and through his son-in-law, uh, who is ultimately granted his farm and his uh, other property in Maryland, he's able to return uh, to the state and uh, live out the rest of his life um, in the revolutionary United States. States. Uh, so it's these kind of negotiations that are made possible uh, in these sites where, where people can kind of come in and out of the lines and uh, make their own personal pieces. And finally, so what happened, uh, what happened uh, to memories of occupation in histories of the revolution? Uh, and what looks different when we put it back or, and even as you've done, uh, put it at the center? That's a great question. And, and I mean, occupation and these, these ambiguous experience don't really fit into early histories of the revolution. Um, 
I was just reading a, a new book on uh, history of the revolution past and prologue by Michael Haddam, uh, which entirely skips the, uh, the war years. And um, that tends to be the case for, for kind of modern histories that the war is, is neglected. Uh, and this was true also for, for historians of the, uh, for er, the earliest historians of the revolution. Uh, David Ramsey, for example, um, does not mention the experiences of occupation, uh, even in his earliest history, which is a history of the revolution in uh, South Carolina, uh, despite the fact that he himself was uh, captured at the siege of Charleston in 1780 and spent about a year in occupied Charleston as a paroled prisoner of war. Uh, and so would have seen many of these ambiguities and, and this kind of nuanced situation close up. Uh, and the reason for this is that uh, it doesn't fit into the uh, uh, the kind of patriotic narratives that people like Ramsey, people like Mercy Otis Warren, uh, these kind of early national historians were trying to set up uh, and were trying to uh, establish in the first uh, decade or two after the end of the war and in the beginning of the early republic. Uh, and as these historians are doing this, they're, they're at the same time being aided uh, by people who experienced occupation themselves, who are very willing to kind of forget uh, about their experiences or at least kind of push them under the rug uh, in order to live comfortably and securely in the new republic. Um, one of the, the people I found in my research was uh, an inke another innkeeper in Newport, Rhode Island uh, named Mary Almy. Uh, and Almy had uh, a series of very provocative letters that she wrote during the Battle of uh, Rhode Island in 1778-1779, um, in which she made clear that she was not only not you know one of these people on the fence, but a vehement loyalist. Uh, she writes, for example, that um, you know God can take the Frenchmen to hell, um, and that uh, you know the, the the British army should. Uh, march victoriously through the streets. Um, but after the occupation ends and, and after the war, uh, she takes these, these letters and uh, the, her, her correspondence um, and she secrets them. She gives them to a close friend to hide. Uh, and they're not found uh, later until about 75 years later when her grandchildren are going through an attic. Uh, and uh, ultimately find out, oh, grandma was a loyalist. Um, and so there's, there's kind of a secreting, a, a, a cover-up uh, of some of these occupation experiences. Uh, another example of this is, you know, someone who's pretty familiar to people who study the early Republic, uh, which is the political economist Tench Cox. Uh, Cox was uh, a prominent loyalist really early on um, in occupied Philadelphia. He made a fortune uh, profiteering, essentially obtaining licenses to trade with the British Caribbean from the occupation authorities uh, and importing and exporting uh, goods uh, between Philadelphia and the West Indies. Uh, 
Um, but when the British withdraw, he makes uh, his peace with the Revolutionary Army. He sneaks outside of the city uh, on the eve of the British withdrawal to sign a loyalty oath to the Revolutionary State of Philadelphia or of Pennsylvania. Uh, he um, makes his obsolescence uh, to the revolutionaries. Uh, and by the 1780s, he's such a good citizen of the state that they elect him to the Continental Congress. And ultimately, he serves in uh, both both the Washington and Jefferson administrations under the Department of the Treasury. Um, so there are a lot of people in uh, post-revolutionary America who were more than willing to kind of go along with this project of forgetting occupation. Uh, but what it does when we reintroduce it into the narrative is it gives us a sense of the nuances and of the truly uh, the transformations that are going on in people's everyday lives and um, of some of the concerns uh, that uh, that are taking place kind of uh, within these larger historical events. Uh, and it also shows us how ordinary people contributed both to uh, the causes and the outcomes of, uh, of some of these events. I've been speaking with Donald F. Johnson, author of Occupied America, British Military Rule, and the Experience of Revolution, published now by the University of Pennsylvania Press, uh, where historians have tended to write to and from the revolution and to approach it from sometimes its very far continental edges. It's a refreshing return to the urban centers of revolution, particularly in a year where places like Philadelphia have proved their ability to continue to defend the Republic. Don, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you. Congratulations on an excellent book. Thank you so much, and thank you for the opportunity.